The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. And I'll simply add to that, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And as I reboot my slides, there we go. Well, hey, um, welcome. This, uh, this year, as some of you know, we are looking at encountering Jesus through the book of Mark. And uh, we, are, we are still filling slots throughout the year. So if you have any, uh, as, as you're hearing us go through some of these, if you think, you know what, maybe I do uh, have something I, I could share, please let us know because we, uh, we have a whole year of time to fill and we'd like some stories. Uh, but today I had reserved this one from uh, months ago for my own, one of my own stories. So if you've been around Mission very long, you've probably, you've probably heard of my kind of turning point story. I was at a youth convention at age 17, and it's this key kind of uh, piece of my, my story where I'm at this moment, and I am down in the dumps, right? And it's so far down that I begin to think some pretty dark thoughts. So I, I think uh, in, in inwardly, in this moment where I'm sitting in a hotel room with a dude named Tony watching the movie Boys in the Hood, which most, you know, this is typical youth convention uh, stuff I hear. I actually asked my youth pastor and she said, I know more about what you were up to than you realize. And I said, hmm, did you? Uh-oh. But, uh, but I'm, I'm watching Boys in the Hood with Tony. I'm sitting on the floor and uh, I'm thinking this thought, uh, maybe if I died, they'd finally notice me, right? Um, and who would notice me? Well, at this point, at age 17, it's girls, right? If I, but if I died, maybe they would notice me. And something in my head um, struck me, and I, and, it, and I thought, this isn't good. This is when people hurt themselves, right? Like, this is, this is not a good place to be. And I prayed probably one of the more honest prayers of my entire life, and it was very simple. It was just something to the effect of, God, this isn't good. I'm not okay. Uh, what do I do? Something like that. So the next day, you know, we finish Boys in the Hood, go to sleep. Uh, and the next day, I show up to the youth convention, and, and I tell you, everything was exactly what you'd expect. There was the lights and the band and all the, the things. There were thousands of kids. I think we were in Cincinnati uh, for this kind of nationwide youth convention. And a guy gets up there and he tells a story about being kind of a troubled nobody kid um, who had been told about Jesus and realized Jesus was calling his name and loved him and could actually do something with his life. And, uh, and I'd heard these things thousands of times. I was a church kid. I, I had heard this a million times. Um, but that time, I felt it was almost like physically drawn, as in I knew I had to respond to this. Like, I had asked for something from God, and I'm hearing you could be loved by God and your life could be changed. And I realized I just asked for help. I think God is giving me the help I asked for. And something really did unlock for me in that moment. I, the, uh, the depression lifted. I stopped kind of focusing on those, those thoughts. I began to wonder what it would be like to know God deeply. My mom would say my, my whole outlook changed right when I got home. It's an absolute mile, milestone in my life. 
And, and that, like kind of those hopeless depths uh, were, were a place that I hadn't seen for a long time. And I, I went through some stuff, guys, um, in, between, in between that point and today. Um, the, the worst stuff of my life happened in between then, um, where my best friend and, my, and his fiance died on the way to their wedding. I went through a horrific divorce when my girl was a baby. Um, I lost my father to cancer. I mean, this is terrible stuff in the middle. And I, but I, I had a hope. I f- something was better until this past summer. Um, it was pretty unremarkable. You all know I was on sabbatical and if you watch my Instagram, I went to a lot of baseball games, right? Like, it was not a bad summer, but I felt what I felt when I was 17 for the first time since I was 17. Um, not that girls would notice me. Don't worry. That wasn't, that wasn't the big idea. Um, in, in fact, it was almost the opposite. Um, it was almost like, leave me alone. Um, I can't get any space. And I started feeling that sense of, do I want to live, right? Now, why, why do I tell you this? Um, because dark times are times of great temptation. And I was feeling that this summer. Um, and some of the most profound times of temptation, we don't tend to classify them as this because when we think of, of temptation, we think of rebellion or something like that usually. And I'm not saying that's not a temptation, but this was a temptation to give up. And it didn't look the way that you'd expect. Remember, I I just looked like I was off, you know, going to baseball games. But let's take a look at Jesus's great temptation. That's what Jared's read for us. This is the shortest explanation of Jesus's temptation in the Bible. But four critical themes jump out. And I think Peter, who we've said is probably behind Mark's account, um, they want us to see these things. They, they, they synthesize it down, and the, the information they omit is helping us focus on the information that they share. And remember several weeks ago, I said Mark is collecting Peter's accounts. He's organized them kind of uniquely, and some people think it's an ancient biography and with maybe a hint of ancient theater to it. And an ancient biography is not like our biography where it's a tell-all. An ancient biography is giving you a short moment in a person's life that you could, where you could ask the question, how do I respond to that? How do I live out of that? So what, what does that mean? It means that when you read this short little text that Jared just read to us, you should ask, how do I respond to this? So we're going to look at the four, the four big things that stand out and, and ask that question, how, how do we respond to this? So um, in Jesus' encounter, he's led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness by Satan with wild animals and angels. So we're just going to look at those. Jesus' temptation was by God's Spirit. Now, to be honest, this is easier to handle when it's applied to Jesus, right? Because we think of Jesus as very God-like, and we've lost the impact of remembering him as a person. So when you think Jesus... God was led into the, into the wilderness by the Spirit. Yeah, great. That's, that's good. Like, isn't, isn't the Spirit, there goes my bottle cap, uh, isn't the Spirit, you know, leading Jesus all the time? But when you think about Jesus as a person, you have to ask the question, what does it mean for a person to be driven by the Spirit of God to be tempted? What, what is that about? You know, when we think about temptation for people, we tend to think about being 
drawn and enticed by things. And those are biblical ideas, right? And we'll see that Jesus does encounter some of that. We're getting there. But, but the first thing we want to look at is that God's spirit. Now, John just told us about how that spirit descended upon him at his baptism. That, that spirit has affirmed that he is the beloved son of God, has sealed his calling. We Christians might call that, that spirit our comforter. That spirit who we seek to connect with and worship and listen to in prayer, that spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And Matthew, uh, another biographer of Jesus, says explicitly, not just that the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, but drove Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted for that very purpose. Why would the Holy Spirit do that to a person? Would he do that to me? Or to you. Doesn't the Bible teach that God wouldn't tempt a person? Here, here's one of our key temptation verses in the Bible, James 1, 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God can't be tempted by evil, but he tempts no one, or he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And this is true. God would betray his character to tempt us. But often we forget that the preceding verse to that says this, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Under, under a test, a trial? You know, who's administering this, this test? Could it be God? I mean, God, according to James, rewards the one who remains steadfast. So God's somehow involved, right? And this makes some sense of the other big temptation in Scripture, or temptation in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way to escape that you may be able to endure it. So here God is at least allowing and is providing a way of escape, and he's involved in the temptation, kind of gauging how much you can handle, making sure it is bearable and escapable. Now, I don't know if that's reassuring to you or not. It probably depends on what you've expected of God. You may be thinking right now, like, I thought God was the safe place, right? Not the one orchestrating temptations. Or maybe, maybe you view God as somebody who's kind of up in the sky testing you all the time. I don't, I don't know. But at the moment, we're getting our, ahead of ourselves to ask those questions. The point is this. The Spirit does drive people into what you could experience as a temptation. Um, and that's exactly what happened with Jesus. Jesus, as a person, was driven into the wilderness where he would endure great temptation. So how am I to think about how I felt when I was 17 years old in light of this, right? And about my summer, what was God's spirit's role in that for me? Right. And what about you? In the dark times, the temptations, you know, what, what does this story of Jesus mean for you and how you think about that? Well, it means a lot, but for now, um, why does Mark, of all details, tell us that Jesus was driven into the wilderness? says the spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 
He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering him. Um, the wilderness. What do you what do you think of when you think of the wilderness? I'll, I'll tell you what I think of: um, the wildwood and the wind and the willows. That's that's what first came to mind. I just thought I thought to myself, what do I think of when I think of the the wilderness? And it's wind in the willows. This is one of my favorite stories as a kid. That I've read the book. Uh, my mom worked in the library of a high school, and so after school, when I was younger, I'd have to sit there for two hours till she got off work. And there was a, a, a DVD or VHS at the time of Wind in the Willows, and so I would think, um, you know, this, this, these scenes captured me. These weasels that were hiding in the trees, and the trees started to kind of come to life. So as soon as I hear uh, the wilderness. That, that's sort of what I think of. And, and why is that? It, it's because the wilderness has become a, a symbol to some degree, a symbol of an untamed, dangerous place, of a place where we're unsheltered and exposed, a place where we might get lost and afraid, even tempted. And this symbolic idea and theme is in the Bible too. It, it doesn't mean there weren't actual wildernesses. There are, and Jesus was in one. But there's layers of meaning to say that he was in the, in the, the wilderness. It, it wasn't simply the location where he was. See, when, a, when an ancient person would have read this biography and they read the word wilderness, they would have thought of so many things this alluded to. First of all, I think they would have thought of the space outside of the garden in Genesis. So I've said this here many times. The Garden of Eden is just so clearly in the scripture, not the whole world. It's a, it's a location in the world. It's like a sanctuary. It's where, where God is, where the tree of life is, where the river of life is. And then there's the world that you're sent out into. The people are, are being prepared to go out into and to represent the God that they've known in the garden. But outside of that space, you're out among the pagans and the giants. There's all these questions like, why are there people so early in Genesis? Why are they all there? Well, I, you know, I don't have all the answers to that, but I know there's, there's stuff out there. There's people out there. And they're, and they're often cast as kind of, uh, you know, wilderness people. People that we didn't understand. Um, out where people were called to go, where God had not yet been revealed. Later in the book of Genesis, there's the call of Abram, and he's to leave his homeland and travel through unknown places, through, through wilderness places, toward a promised homeland that's past the wilderness in between. Um, probably the best known wilderness is in the Exodus, where God's people uh, escape from slavery due to God's miraculous work uh, in a world-dominating Egyptian culture. And when they're delivered, God's spirit leads them into what? A wilderness. And what are they enduring in the wilderness? It's a test. Um, for 40 years, they're tested in the wilderness. And Jesus' 40 days would have sounded familiar to a Jewish person reading this story. They would have thought, ah, Jesus is doing what the Israelites did. Speaking of world powers, one of the most incredible uh, biblical stories is the, the Babylonian Empire, um, which has become a symbol as well. It's, uh, it starts with the Tower of Babel, um, this idea that there's a, a people who are building um, their own, you know, to their own glory, kind of their own godlike pursuit, where they're trying to raise themselves up into the heavenly heights. Um, they're using all the technology and warfare that humanity could conceive of. And then this Babylonian Empire theme grows, and there actually there is a, a, a nation that grows out of that 
that people and it's, it's Babylon, right? And then even flash forward into the book of Revelation and there's this idea of the, the symbol of Babylon. But the great king of Babylon uh, has an interesting story and there, there's so much to it. But he is, is the king of the, the empire of all empires, the one that will become the symbolic empire and what happens to him? God brings him down and does what? He sends him out into the wilderness. This is William Blake's famous painting of Nebuchadnezzar who is cast down and becomes animal-like and is out in the wilderness where what? He discovers who God is and God restores him. He loses his mind, roams in the wilderness with the beasts and God teaches him something there and restores him. But also God's prophets are the types who might, you know, meet and wrestle with God in the wilderness. In fact, we just, we just heard about John the Baptist, and he's coming from the wilderness. Um, he's, a, he's a wilderness wanderer, and so the wilderness can be a place where you go and you meet with God, and you experience the stripping away of all these things, and you actually come away transformed. So almost all commentators will acknowledge, and we should too, that this story isn't meant to leave us with a simple conclusion that Jesus was driven out into a particular wilderness. Um, this is an ancient biography. It's not meant to simply say, you know, it's not like if we were here and I said, no, oh, Jesus, when he was tempted, he was on the backside of Mount Lemon. That was the location. Um, that's not what it's trying to say. It's saying far more. It's saying that God, the Spirit of God, sent Jesus into the testing place, the place where we people are cast, were cast when we doubted the goodness of God in the garden, uh, the place in between where people like us um, sojourn in between the calling of God like Abram and the, the, the land that he'd promised that he had to get to by passing between. Um, just like in the Exodus, it's that space after God might deliver us that we have to walk through before we see Canaan and the restoration and the, the land that God has promised us. It's the place where we um, might end up when we lose our minds and are humbled to the dust where God might meet us. It's where we're tested. Now, the other gospel writers tell us more about the details of Jesus's temptation, and um, those can be also understood as being many of our temptations, and they begin to reach deep within the soul of Jesus and speak to the, the deeper temptations of our souls, and they become much more personal. And that's where this evil Lord uh, is introduced in the text, the Satan, okay. Satan. That's probably how it would sound. The uh, anglicized version is Satan, right? The accuser. Why does this Satan get access to Jesus, to this world? Um, do you know what the oldest book of the Bible is? Anybody remember? Job. Yes. Um, before God's people had the Genesis uh, story written, uh, um, they had Job. And in a way, Job in, it paints the entire picture. Uh, there's a righteous man living in almost like the abundance of Eden, and there's a stunning temptation from outside of himself, and he, he loses everything, though it's not his fault. Um, he enters into kind of a wilderness experience where he's, he's losing his health, he's losing his mind, he's losing his friends, he's losing his family. The voices from all around him are culminating in, in of course, what his wife says, and something to the effect of, curse God or bless God, Roland, right? And die. And Roland can fill you in. This is one of his favorite um, things to talk about. Um, but uh, but what, a, what, a, what a lovely moment in their marriage, you know, um, where she looks and says, you know what, buddy? Curse God and die. 
Yeah. And then there's a restoration. And God reveals himself to Job in this majestic whirlwind. It's like a microcosm of the whole biblical story uh, because he's restored to the fortunes he had before, even more, even more than he could have imagined after God reveals to him who he is, um, after he's gone through this time of loss and testing. This is the first written story that God's people had, but what surprises us often, at least as moderns, um, modern people, what surprises us the most is at the very beginning of the book, it's the fact that Satan approaches God and says, um, you know, yeah, who can, I, who can I mess with? And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And we, we hate that. That seems so strange that God would go, um, here's a guy that honors me very much. Have at him, right? Well, here in Mark, the Spirit of God drives Jesus into the wilderness, and it's as if God says, have you considered my servant Jesus? So Satan is not the yin to God's yang. It's important to say that, that, that Satan is not like, it's not like there's a two world powers, God Satan. The, the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time giving us a biography of Satan. In fact, that word Satan is more of a title or adjective than a name. He has no biography. It means adversary or accuser. It's the inner and spiritual opposition to God, to God, the true and the good. Um, there's a book, War, The War of Art, many people have read. I don't know if any of you have read it, Stephen Pressfield. And he talks a lot about this idea of resistance, this energy that seems to oppose people in, in waking up, eating right, pushing toward what we believe in. And he talks about how everybody feels it and you have to fight against it. And, and he's on to something. The thing about the idea of resistance, though, is it's just impersonal. It's just like it's this force. But in the Bible and in most of our experiences, it's actually very, very personal. It's not just that I want to sleep in because I'm tired. It's that I deserve to sleep in because I work so hard, right? It's not just that we aren't sure we're capable of pursuing our dreams. It's that we think that we aren't enough, that we'll be found out as frauds and failures. It can mimic the voice of a parent. It can mimic the voice of that teacher who criticized you back in third grade. It's so personable. It's almost quotable, right? It's as if an evil voice cloaks itself sometimes in your own voice and says directed things that only you would know about yourself. It's almost as if a formative person in your life walks in the room, but they're in your head, and they speak to you with intent to destroy you. They say it again, you're a nobody, right? It knows what to say with pinpoint accuracy. Temptations are direct and targeted. When I was in the dumps at age 17, I would look, look at myself in the mirror. I wake up, I'm a teenager. I look like every other teenager. And the thought comes into my mind, look at you, you're repulsive. You're the ugliest dude in school. Just poof, right at me. And guess what? It was believable. She'll never like you. Nobody will. And then the voice gets a little different. They should like you, though. You're the, you're the best guy in school. You're, you, you would be everything that they ever wanted, but they don't, they don't recognize it. It's the, like, pride in the depression, right? Maybe if you died, they'd finally notice you. Yeah, see how it works? Over the sabbatical, the target was 
different. They don't care about you. Look at the evidence. You're a tool, not a person. God's not at work in your life. You're by yourself and you're failing. That's the kind of stuff. So directed. And that sounds like depression, right? And it is. But it's personal. It's directed. It's an accusation in the area where I am most tender, right? It's adversarial. It's attempting to hurt me, right? And so are Jesus' temptations. They're aimed at the center of his heart. Why would God make you so miserable out here? Aren't you hungry? You can create bread. Give up. Why would God make you suffer? You could rule the world. You don't have to go through this pain and this loss. Why would God call you to die? You could command your angels and you wouldn't even strike your foot against a stone. Why was God making you go through this? The temptations, by the way, were far deeper than that. We could do a sermon on each one. We could do a year on each one. They're layered. They're cloaked in biblical language. They're so true. They're almost believable. But they're aimed right at his heart. And the temptations we face are aimed at ours so accurately. They don't sound like temptations, but just facts. Self-evident testimony, accusations that are just so darn true. We underestimate temptation when we think it's about our choices. Just do I, do I or do I not drink alcohol? Do I or do I not look at porn on my phone? Do I or do I not lie to my boss? These choices hang on the coattails of our temptations to despair, doubt, be afraid, and give up hope. But they are not the root. And as long as those underlying temptations are given spaces, space, the choices will never end. We'll just replace them. If you, you, could, you might stop, you'll stop doing all the, the wrong things. You'll stop drinking and smoking, right? And then you get, say, okay, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to succeed in life. Oh, well, now you're going to become a religious, you know, superior figure. You're going to become a workaholic. You'll replace one, one action with another serving the same gods. Or self-medicating with something really beautiful like hiking. Or hop on a device or two and whittle your time away. Won't hurt anybody. There's a thousand ways to give in to temptation, right? And if you don't get at the core of it, you're not, you're not making any progress. So what does it mean that God 2,000 years ago said, have you cons considered my servant Jesus and sent him into the testing place, into the wilderness? What does it mean? It means a lot. It means that God is choosing to aim the satanic furies of temptation, the accusation of the adversary that we all face at the one who's able to withstand it, the only one who's able to withstand it, the one who's greater than Adam, Abraham, Moses, Nebuchadnezzar, Job, and most definitely me and you. The one who spoke back to Satan with scripture. It's been written, man shall not live by bread alone, but with by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Um, now, by the way, and listen, this is very important. It's not just because memorizing Bible verses is how you ward off temptation. The Bible is not a self-help book giving you these steps to get out of your temptation. Scripture is key. It's our source right now, and I'm not going to diminish it, but that is not the point. It isn't memorize enough scripture to battle Satan off. 
This is the point. God is giving us the solution. This is God being who we cannot be in our place so that we can place our hope in the one who overcame our temptations, not just get a nice little battle plan. This is where the real power to overcome them from, can come from. This is saying, I have a new voice speaking into my head, and his name is Jesus, and he's been there. He knows how it feels, and what he says to me is more true. The lessons of the wilderness in scripture are never stop making mistakes and God will help you memorize a verse and it will be a magic formula and you will get it right and get out of temptation next time. They're always acknowledge who God is and he will save you. See who Jesus is and what he's done and he will give it to you. Worship God and he will restore you. Temptations are aimed at our hearts and we need to reorient our hearts and worship something new the God who created us. So why does God send us into the wilderness? So that we will discover what our hearts need the most. To have our temptations exposed and stripped bare so that Jesus can be shown to be sufficient. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. What are the temptations of your heart behind your temptations to make the wrong choices? What does the satanic voice whisper to your soul when you begin to lose hope? And what is it exposing? Where is Jesus in your wilderness experiences and what would it look like to turn to him? To listen to him. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Okay, so what's temptation going to look like for you? What's it, um, what's it really going to look like to apply Jesus' victory over temptation to your life? Um, I have to admit that when I read this verse, I got excited because these are the kind of verses that make me want to study the Bible. I, I really wanted to know, um, you know, like, why... Why was he out there with the wild animals? Why, why did Mark, of all, he omits all the details of the temptations, but he's going to tell us about wild animals. I was like, what's with that, you know? Uh, I had this wild wood image in my head and the animals in the dark, and then I started asking questions. I was like, or is this like restored creation imagery where Jesus is like, oh, there's like snakes crawling on him and lions sidling up to him, and he's just like, legit. I, I started wondering. I really wanted to know. Which one is it? And, um, and, and I, you know, I dug into my scholars and my stuff, and it, they've asked that question too, so I felt really good that I was asking the right questions. Um, but here's the deal. It's almost universally agreed upon. This is an allusion to the terrors of being in the wilderness. This is, it's, it's the wildwood. It's the terrors. Um, and, and there are two opposing realities that are being shown to us right here that are going to carry throughout the Gospel of Mark. There's the spirit and there's the Satan. There's the predators and the angels. There's the kingdom of God and truth. There's the dark spiritual powers and lies. There's resistance. There's temptation. There's idolatry. There's the kingdom of God that's coming. There's this dualism in Mark that's kind of saying there are these two sides to the story. Have you ever been afraid of a wild animal? Um, 
I have, I have a few stories, but one's particularly applicable here. Back in 2018, I went to Oregon to grieve my father's death, and uh, it's, it's where he walked when he was a young man, and I wanted to go there and take the walks that he took and meet God in my grief. So I took a train ride up to Oregon because my dad lived in a boxcar as a child, um, and so I took this, this long ride on a train up the coast and met some interesting people, and one of them's name was Strange Bird, and he wore a tail, so he was kind of a furry. Um, and he had walked across the country with his tail, and um, this is all true, and, um, and he's tail- telling me about his, uh, his adventure stories, about the animals, and about how he'd walked, and, uh, and did I believe everything he said? Um, I don't know. Do you believe a man with a tail? I believed him <laughs> sometimes, um, but, but at one point, he was sure, so he had some meat in his pack, and he was hearing some rustling behind him. And he was 100% positive that he was being stalked by a cougar. And so, and he was telling me all about it and all about the sounds and all about the, you know, don't carry an open meat pack in your bag. I'm like, yeah, got it. You know, and, and he, was, he was positive. A cougar had been stalking him. So I get to Oregon um, and I'm doing my thing there and I'm going to take a walk from the hometown, Sodaville, where my dad had lived, down to Lebanon, which is the, the family where, or the, uh, sorry, the town where my family lived when I was little. And uh, so I drive to Sodaville. I'm going to take like a five or six hour walk back and forth now. And uh, so I, I show up in the parking lot, this little town. There's like a town of like 20 houses, one store. And I get out and there's a community board. And I kind of stroll over to the community board. And there on the community board is guess what? A big sign, cougar sightings recently, right? And all of a sudden I'm like, oh. Um, so I'm going to be six hours in these little country roads. And I'm thinking Strange Bird is a prophet. Um, I'm thinking that man was sent by God with his furry little tail to uh, save me from my death. But I decided I came all this way. Um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna give up now. So I, started, I decided to educate myself. I got on my nice little handy dandy phone computer and Googled what do you do if you get attacked by a cougar? And here's what you do. You fight for your life. You yell, scream, try to claw at its eyes. You kick it, and you're probably going to get killed. Um, so if you're, if you're ever wondering if you face a cougar, it's not, you know, be, get big like a bear, be quiet. Just yell, scream, bloody murder, and just hit it and throw things. Um, so I'm not really encouraged at that point, right? Because I'm thinking what this means is if I'm yelling and screaming out in the middle of the woods on a little tiny road, this means my death is glorious. I will be dying while a big cat eats me, and that's kind of cool. But, you know, how am I feeling at this point? Okay, I'm alert. I was alert. Um, I was tense. Every little crackle, right? I'm just checking it out, you know? Like, I come around a corner, I'm looking, you know, looking in the woods as if I'm going to do anything about whatever's in there. Um, And I prayed. I, I'm not just saying this because this is church. I prayed a lot um, in those six hours of, of walking. I think that's what you're supposed to imagine when you hear this verse is Jesus um, experiencing that level of temptation. Um, maybe like me, actually aware that there were predators, you know? There were, what, Mike looked this up, lions, tigers, leopards, Syrian striped hyenas, specifically, all kinds of snakes, lions and tigers and bears, lions and tigers and bears, yes, all all of it, right? Um, 
And he's hyper aware of, of, of that reality. He's out in the wilderness. But more than that, he's under spiritual duress. He knows he's in spiritual danger, right? He's feeling that anxiety, that hyper, hyper heightened awareness, the way that we feel when we're tempted the most. You know, when do you feel that way? When do you start just your, your mind's racing? You, you, can't, you can't stop thinking about your, your hyper folk, your, something's out there, Right? But look, on my, on my walk, I didn't see a cougar. If you watched me, I'm just a guy walking in the woods. If you, if you could zoom up top, I don't look nervous. I'm just a guy walking in the woods. But inwardly, I'm anxious as can be. I'm afraid for my life. And that's what temptation's actually like. Contrary to popular belief, you can't just lock yourself in your house and avoid temptation because you could be sitting there looking as casual as ever. And in your mind, it's all there. It's all there. The deepest temptations are like the knowledge that you're in the wilderness with a cougar stalking you. You're aware of them even when you can't see them. They manifest in your dark thoughts, the hopelessness, the anxiety, the inability to rest, even when you present as totally normal. So you should expect that. Expect that. Learn to recognize that. And more than that, keep in mind that God and Jesus has been there. That's, that's why we're being told this. He's out, in the, he's out in the wilderness with the wild animals, and then the angels are ministering, ministering to him. You're supposed to know he has felt this way. We're not talking about a deity who just spun the universe into existence and sat back and watches it like a movie. We're not talking about an all-powerful God who's playing with us like a little simulation. We're talking about a God who created a world that has become scary, but it isn't just testing and developing our faith. He's preparing us for a better world, and he's proved it by entering in and enduring the temptations and being under the duress himself. Jesus, he understands our weaknesses. He knows how we feel when we're tempted. He was in the wilderness, and he wasn't alone. He was he was with the wild animals. He felt that tension. But the angels were there, right? The divine messengers of peace and God's power were with him, ministering to him, encouraging him, helping him stand in his fears. We talked about angels around Christmas. They're these divine beings that we might experience in various ways, right? Um, you could go, go, go put the descriptions of an angel and an AI generator. You get some wild pictures, and it's pretty cool stuff. But usually... Um, they manifest as a powerful spiritual presence, sometimes even like a person. The shepherds on the hill saw warriors, right? They saw what looked like people. But again, if you zoom back and watch Jesus in the wilderness while the angels were ministering to him, you wouldn't have seen anybody with him. You just would have seen a guy fighting an inner battle. Maybe he'd look a little anxious, then relieved, have some renewed resolve, but you wouldn't see anything. You wouldn't see anything different. Just this past week, I was feeling a little overwhelmed by the amount of things I had to do, and I was a little anxious, um, but, I, but I received these little encouragements. Sometimes I just had a thought or a memory. At one point, I met somebody at a coffee shop who told me their story of like coming to Jesus, and I just felt like this, this renewed strength, this renewed energy within me, and, and that's, that's often how the angels do their work. That's what the encouragement of God might look like. Jesus in the wilderness was ministered to, but it was just in counter ideas, thoughts, memories that reminded him of who he really was and what God was going to do. And that's, that's how the angels work. They don't necessarily show up in a big display. 
But today, because Jesus passed the test in the wilderness, we have everything that was offered to him, the angelic support and more, because we now have a God who's been in the wilderness of our temptations and has overcome them. And he knows how much it meant to him to have the minister, the ministering angels, and now he is ministering to us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night of the last temptation of Christ, when he would agonize alone in the garden, asking God, is there any other way besides my death? Can this cup, this plan that you have for me, can it be taken away? Is there any other way? Is there any other way to save these people from the darkness in this wilderness? That weekend, he took the bread at the table. Remember, he was tempted to make it, right? When he was going into that wilderness the last time. And this time he said, this is my body broken for you. Remember me. Remember me every time you eat it. Because we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the words proceeding from the mouth of Jesus remind us of who he is and who we are because of him. And he took the wine at the table and blessed it, saying, this is my blood of a new promise for the forgiveness of many. So friends, when you hear the satanic accusation that you failed, you've gone too far, you're not enough, you're not worthy, do you know what that means? It means you can say, you're right. It's true. But one thing is truer still, that Jesus has withstood all these temptations, and he endured the test. He is enough. He is worthy, and I'm going to worship him. That's how we fight temptation, is we receive the work that Jesus has done for us. We're going to do three things now. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. We'll take two minutes of silence, and that's a time for us to just uh, sit before God and um, open our hearts to him. If, if some of this is new to you, if you haven't really asked that question of uh, what are the deepest temptations in my heart and what, is, what does it mean that Jesus has endured them for me, um, just, just ask. Ask God. Ask God to reveal these things to you. Um, if something comes to mind where you've identified one of those things, like here's, here's at the heart, at the core of my being, what I'm really struggling with. This is where the satanic accusation gets me right in the heart. Um, Jesus has said this. He said that you can confess your sins to him. He is God. He is the safest place for you to confess your sins because he is ready and willing and prepared to forgive you and cleanse you. He's not a God who's standing up there ready to smite you. He can't wait for you to say, I need you, so he can forgive you. So take that time and uh, pray in those ways to God. We're going to then uh, take the Lord's Supper. Uh, after that time of prayer, Michael, come up here and play some music. And you'll notice that, so that some of us will begin to stand up here and, and come forward. You are welcome to do that if you can say within your heart, I want this. Um, if you just with a little bit of faith can say, that's what I need. That's all it takes. Um, just a mustard seed of faith, Jesus said. So if you can, if you can open your heart to Jesus and say, help like my little prayer, help me, I'm in trouble. Um, you're in a good place and you can receive what he's done for you. Um, 
you can, uh, you can come up and receive that. We're going to sing together at this time. That's where Mike's chosen songs very thoughtfully that are trying to take these truths that I've just talked about that God has preserved for us in his word and try to help them sink down in our souls in a memorable way. So sing with a heart of worship, uh, remembering who Jesus is uh, for us. And then we're going to have giving in the back. Um, that's always there. There's a tablet back there and you can uh, give. We, we hope that you'd be giving in response to God's generosity to you and that you would be saying, hey, um, I want to I wanna invest in more people knowing what Jesus has done uh, for, for us. And so I'm going to pray for us now, uh, and then we will enter into that time of silence. So let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful. We are grateful that though your spirit does drive us into the wilderness, that you sent Jesus there, that you went there, that you've uh, undergone the terrors of our temptation, that you felt the, the pressure and the fear and the anxiety, that you've heard the satanic voice in your head cutting to the heart of who you were and you withstood it. Um, and that you don't just look at us and say, hey, uh, I did it, you can do it. You look at us and say, I did it for you. I did it so that you can stand in my grace. I pray that we would receive that. It would transform our outlook on life, that we would go out into the world um, ready to serve you and love you, that we would offer our lives to you as an act of worship. Every single thing that we do, that would be shaped by who you are, that when we go to work, it would be just saturated with our love for you and for your world that you've given us. Uh, that when we go out into our relationships and our family, that we, we would be stewards of this grace, giving generously um, the forgiveness to others that you've offered to us. I pray that as we think about giving, that you would take care of us and provide for every need, that you would um, take care of each one of these people, that you'd be so aware of their needs that they would understand that you care about them more than the birds of the field, and that as you provide for their needs, that they would feel inside their hearts, a desire to invest in your kingdom. I pray that now as we pray and sing, that you administer these truths to our hearts in Jesus' name.